Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Good to see you guys. Today we're going to be uh, starting a new book, the book of Nehemiah, if you'd like to get your Bibles out and get situated there. And as you're turning there, uh, I wanted to, uh, they asked me to give an announcement about a big new ministry that we're starting here as a church, or we're going to try this next year, 2022, called Growth Nights. Uh, We believe, of course, as Christians, that it's important for us to pour into our spiritual development. And I think that in the day and age that we're living in, we have to take concerted steps towards you know, growing ourselves in Christ Jesus, feeding the spirit rather than uh, the flesh. And so uh, what we've decided to do this year is on the first Sunday night of every single month from, January, or from February all the way through November, we're going to have a gathering here on the church campus uh, for all of you called Growth Nights. And uh, we want to invite you out to that. We'll have food trucks for those who would like to eat dinner beforehand. We'll have an Awana-styled thing for the kids to be able to be involved in if they're of that age, a middle school uh, ministry and function. But everybody, high school and older, we'd love to invite into the Growth Night um, teaching so that you can grow in Christ. Now this year, uh, we've prayed about what our curriculum or subject matter should be for those uh, nights, and the Lord has uh, put on my heart, you guys know a number of years ago I wrote a book called The No-Nonsense Biblical Man, and uh, because of that I get to go speak at different men's conferences here and there uh, throughout you know, our part of the world, our neck of the woods. But the Lord's put on my heart to talk again to the men uh, in the church. Our church vision statement is Jesus Famous, And so I'm going to be teaching the men on Jesus famous men. What does a Jesus famous man look like? What does a man look like who the gospel has exploded in their heart and life? My wife, Christina, has agreed to join me in this endeavor, so she's going to teach the women, you guessed it, Jesus famous women. We're so clever how we're working together like this. And uh, I really think it's going to be an exciting time, a a good time for us to get fed and encouraged. So when the registration for that comes out, I'd encourage you guys to get signed up uh, for that. You can, of course, come at any of the weeks. If you can't make it to all 10, you could come to six of them, you know, whatever. But we'd love to get you here on those first Sunday nights of each month. I'd encourage you, if you're a calendar kind of person, some people don't do that, but if you're a calendar person... Put it in your calendar right now. I see somebody doing it right now. They're just plugging it in. I'm going to get it in my calendar. You got your calendar with you? Put it in your calendar right now. First Sunday night of the month. I think it's at 6 o'clock. It's probably get the time down in my head. 5.30 to 7 p.m. That's when it is. And uh, so looking forward to having you out to, uh, to that, to Growth Nights. Uh, we're, we're starting Nehemiah today, like I mentioned. Oh, and I did want to mention, if you want to help out with the kids' ministry, with the Awana-style program that they're doing, uh, let the kids' team know that you'd like to serve in that way on that night. Uh, but for the book of Nehemiah, I'm going to be teaching this from the angle of, you know, God in Nehemiah renewed his people, and that's what God wants to do for his people in every generation. He wants to renew us, and uh, he wants to renew us. So as we go through Nehemiah, I'm going to ask different people from the congregation to actually read the passage of Scripture that we're going to be studying today. So today i got uh, Daniel Reed. He's going to be reading the Scripture. Would you welcome Daniel with me this morning? 
Daniel is uh, actually a new member to our Calvary Monterey staff, so I'm kind of doubling up and introducing you to uh, introducing him to you today. Uh, he came to the Monterey Peninsula because of love. He uh, found a young woman in our church, and they dated each other online, and then they got engaged, and so he decided that he would move out here uh, to be with her as they prepare for their marriage in a few months. Uh, but once he came, he's a very, very gifted worship leader. You've seen him leading worship, and he's gifted in other ways as well. And as you know, uh, last year, Pastor Riley, who was over here today leading worship, he was promoted to be the lead worship pastor of the church and kind of left a position behind. And so Daniel has uh, interviewed with us and met with us, and it just seemed like, man, the Lord has brought this young man uh, to fill the shoes that kind of Riley left behind as he was promoted into this next thing. So um, it's an honor to introduce Daniel to you. And uh, he's going to read Nehemiah 1. I'm not trying to be mean by having people read the book of Nehemiah. There are some tricky Hebrew names <laughs> throughout this book. We were joking about it this week because uh, there's a guy named Hanani in this passage. And he's really nervous that he's going to say Hanani. So if somebody messes up a name, just roll with it. You know, like we don't really know how they said it. So let's just, <laughs> Hanani, do it. Hanani. All right. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's follow along with Daniel. Well, thank you, Pastor Nate. It's a pleasure to, to be here and serve with you guys. I don't know if it'd be easier for me to sing it, because a reader, I'm not. <laughs> but let's do it. Let's get our swords out and read from Nehemiah chapter 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnants there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. This is Nehemiah's prayer. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven and I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with all those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that now I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Awesome. Let's pray together. Father, we want to pray for Daniel. Thank you for bringing him here to our church family. We pray that you bless, Lord, the work of his hands and that you'd give him, Lord, great ministry here in all that he does. We pray that he would prosper, including, Lord, in this 
new relationship and marriage that he's pursuing. We pray that you prepare him and Natalie well for that day, for that marriage, and Lord, that you would bless them for years to come. And now, Lord, we thank you for your holy word, the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for preserving it for us all these years. And we ask, Lord, that you'd speak to us from it, the things that you did in that era. We ask, Lord, that you'd encourage us today by them and that some of the things that you did then would be things that you do uh, in our lives personally and in our church family today. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. All right, thanks, man. Well, the book of Nehemiah is um, often taught or thought of as a book all about leadership because Nehemiah was an incredible leader. Within 52 days uh, upon arriving in Jerusalem, Nehemiah will lead the people of Israel to rebuild uh, the walls of the city and repair the gates of the old city of Jerusalem. And there are certainly incredible things to learn about leadership, about courage, about taking a step of faith, by looking into the book of Nehemiah. But what I want you to think about as we go through this book is that Nehemiah is, although he's the main character of the book, he's not the main figure of the book. The main figure, mover, the one who's doing things in the book of Nehemiah is God. Uh, so many of the books of the Bible are about the Lord, what the Lord is doing, how God feels, what God thinks, what God is pursuing. And this is no different in the book of Nehemiah, we get to learn about God. God, of course, we know, loves his people. All the way back in the book of Genesis, God called a man named Abraham to leave a place called Ur of the Chaldees. And in faith, believe that if he left and went to the land that God showed him, that God would give his offspring, not just a land, but that they become a nation that would be a blessing to the whole world. And Abraham believed that promise of God, and he left Ur of the Chaldees, and he pursued God's best and plan and will for his life. And after the people of Israel grew to a numerous multitude of two to three million people in slavery in Egypt, God rescued them from their slavery through the book of Exodus, the actions of the Exodus, and brought them into the promised land. But after that point, once they were established in the land, though God made a covenant with the people of Israel, the people of Israel struggled to be obedient to the covenant that God had given to them. They were meant to be a light to the nations. They were meant to be a nation for the nations. They were meant to broadcast the glory of God to the world around them. God had said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But because of their disobedience, their light was dimmed, and the nations could not see God's glory. Now, God had said in his covenant that if they persisted in long-term rebellion against him, he would be forced to do something that the Bible calls his unnatural or his strange work. He would be forced to discipline them, forced to judge them. And eventually, after 500 years nearly of resistance to God and his word, resistance to God's prophets and messengers, God's judgment came upon the people of Israel in the form of King Nebuchadnezzar, who brought especially the southern kingdom into captivity in Babylon. God said, for 70 years you will live in exile in Babylon, 
But God also predicted that a king named Cyrus would arrive, arise after Nebuchadnezzar, who would commission Israel to go back into Jerusalem and Israel to rebuild God's holy city. And just as God had said, Cyrus, by the time of Nehemiah, had arisen. He commissioned the return of God's people and the rebuilding of God's temple. But though the people of Israel tried here and there to rebuild the city and not just the temple, they never truly rebuilt the city as we learn in our text here this morning. Threats from enemies and letters from foreign kings stopped them time and time again, dead in their tracks. And rather than courageously push through the difficulties to get the clear will of God done, the Israelites settled. They settled for a meager temple inside of a broken down city on a hill. The city, Jerusalem, that was meant to be a lighthouse penetrating the darkness with God's glory was reduced to a crumbled and uninhabitable wasteland. Some people could have even looked at Jerusalem and come to false conclusions about Jerusalem's God, that God was also weak and unable to thrive in those modern times. So God began doing what God does. He started renewing his people. And what we just read here in Nehemiah chapter one is the beginning of that work, stirring up the heart of Nehemiah so that Nehemiah could be used by God to renew the people of God so that they could get after the work that he had called them to do. And this is always God's work. God is always interested in renewing, building, strengthening his people. In the book of Matthew in the New Testament, there's an episode where Jesus is walking with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, maybe even near some of the idols of that territory, and he asks the question, who do people say that I am? And they give some answers, and then they say, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But Jesus, in response to Peter and to all the disciples, announced to Peter and the disciples that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That, in a sense, is what the book of Nehemiah is about. God building his church. Old Testament Israel people of God, but God building his church. Because, guess what? They needed to be built. They needed to be strengthened. They needed to be renewed. And God would be the one doing that renewing. You see, this is an important work that God is gonna do here in the book of Nehemiah, and it's an important work that God will do in our lives today. When they lived without gates and walls in their capital city, they were not what God meant for them to be. They weren't the city and the people that broadcast God's glory to the world. And so God dealt with them. And in a similar way, when God's church and God's people are not what we are meant to be, God's glory is not broadcast into the world as it should be. So God works hard like he has in every generation to renew his people. And the book of Nehemiah is gonna show us how or some of the ways that God accomplishes that renewing work. And before I move forward, I just wanna ask the question, how many of you today might feel a little bit of a need for renewal in your own life? I mean, these last couple of years have been super easy, right? <laughs> just a blessing. <laughs> 
you know, they've been, they've been a challenge. They've been difficult. Even if you haven't been directly impacted like so many millions of people have been directly impacted by these last couple of years, even if your life has just kind of gone along fairly normally, it's still kind of like driving with the emergency brake on or living life with this background migraine headache. You can't shake the division and change and shifting that has occurred. We might not even be able to put our finger on what's wrong, but we know that we could use God's renewal. And I'm convinced that the church, Jesus' church, that we're in need of renewal as well. You know, individually, we might need that renewal, but I think as we come together to form God's church, we need renewal together, corporately. I believe God wants to take us as a church family into a, a year of renewal. A renewal of understanding that only his presence and his purpose, nothing more can satisfy us, that we need God. So I'm really excited about getting into the book of Nehemiah together to talk to you about how God renews his people. Now in this first chapter, the way I wanted to say it is that God renews his people by revealing his burden to us. He reveals his burden to us. He shares his perspective, the way he sees things with his people. It's kind of the start of of experiencing that renewal with the Lord. You see, the first thing that God does in this passage or in this book is he reveals to Nehemiah a gap between what is and a gap uh, between what is and what could be. And I think God does that. He'll, He'll reveal that gap in our lives. Nehemiah starts the story, those first few verses, by giving us a time stamp. We're in December, likely, or late November, the winter month of Kislev. Uh, We're in the 20th year, he tells us. That means it's the 20th year that King Artaxerxes was the king at that time. And Nehemiah was with Artaxerxes in his winter palace in a place called Susa. And what this means is that this book that is all about God rebuilding Jerusalem and renewing Jerusalem's people, it starts a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. You see, sometimes God is doing a work that he has a destination, he has a purpose, but he's got to start far away, many steps away, in order for his ultimate will and purposes to be accomplished. Nehemiah was far from Jerusalem, living in and serving the Persian Empire. In the book, he will become the governor of Jerusalem, but the story starts with Nehemiah as the cupbearer to a Persian king in a land far, far away. And while he was there, far away from Jerusalem, one day, Nehemiah's brother, this guy named Hanani, or Hanani, he shows up with some men from Judah. That's where Jerusalem was. And Nehemiah asked them about the remnant of Israelites in the land, and he asked them about the condition of Jerusalem. I want you to note that he asked the question. So often, God depositing his burden, his vision, his insight, him showing us how he sees things, it begins with us sincerely, in a spirit-led way, asking the question, what's reality? God, what do you see? Where are things actually at. And Hananiah's reply broke Nehemiah's heart. He said in verse three, the remnant there in the province 
who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. There's no sugarcoating this answer. It's, it's not good, it's terrible, it's, it's a worst case scenario. But Nehemiah is hit with the truth in this moment. And I believe this whole encounter, even Nehemiah's question, Hannah and I coming from Judah, the interaction, the question, I think they were all an outworking of God's providence. God was in control. God brought Hannah and I to Nehemiah. God stirred Nehemiah to ask this question. God had an appointment for these two brothers together. God worked in Nehemiah care and concern for the city and for the people. And for God to renew us, we have to see the need for renewal, amen? I mean, God designs, because of this, ways to share his burden with us and to show us what he sees. And with Hananiah's reply, Nehemiah was hit with the truth. The glorious city of Jerusalem, a city that he'd read about in the Bible, in the Hebrew scriptures, a city that he daydreamed about, well, in a foreign land. It was nothing but rubble and ruin. And the people, the people there, the people who could do something about it, they were doing nothing about it. The city that David captured and that Solomon built in a full glory. It was just an ash heap of crushed dreams. And God was showing it to Nehemiah that day. You guys, it's good and gracious of God to reveal the gap between what could be and what is at times. Think about it like this. A doctor will at times run lab work on their patient's blood. I don't know if you've ever gotten one of those reports before. You know, you get a printout or whatever. I have no idea what I'm looking at. I can't even pronounce half of the things that they tested, and then they have numbers, you know, like only, it'd be, it would work for me if they like gave me like A, B, C, you get a D minus on this one, you know, or whatever, but they just give you these numbers, but then next to them, what do they give you? They give you a reference range. That range is meant to demonstrate what, could be or what should be in comparison with where you are. It's helpful to those of us who need that information. And God also diagnoses our condition. And he'll show us at times the gap between ideal and reality. You know, God is described in Romans 8 verse 27. I love this. He's described as he who searches hearts. Can you relate to God as that? the one who searches hearts. That passage goes on to say that if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, the Spirit of God is residing within you and he's the one that is searching your heart. He, he knows you in and out. And then what it says, and this is phenomenal to me, he then takes what he discovers and he forms prayers for you to your Father in heaven. So the Spirit of God inside of you, figuring you out, then brings that information to the Father and intercedes on your behalf. Now this is the third person of the triune Godhead we're talking about, so the Father is ready to hear that intercession. And sometimes the Spirit is asking, I wanna wake them up. I wanna wake them up, Father. I want to show them this gap that exists. 
You see, God will do this in so many ways. He might reveal the gap between what could be and what is at times by allowing you to fail. Have you ever had that experience? You lash out at someone who clearly doesn't deserve it and you feel terrible afterwards. Like, what happened? Why is that me? Why am I acting this way? What gap exists inside my heart? He might reveal the gap by allowing emptiness into your life. He might reveal the gap by exposing sins that you've quietly justified, maybe even for decades, but once others see and know them, you become mortified. He might reveal the gap with a still, small voice. He might reveal the gap by snapping you into a vision of his holiness, which helps you leave or exit the pattern of just comparing yourself with other people, and you begin seeing yourself in the light of his holy nature. But one way or another, God will reveal the gap when a gap exists. And this is his mercy and his grace to wake us up from the matrix of numbed, self-congratulatory existence and into reality. And by the way, this is our Father in heaven doing this. He never does this to decimate us. If he wanted to decimate us, guess what he would do? He would just decimate us. (laughs) He does this so that he can bring us into life. He wanted Saul in the Old Testament, and Judas in the New Testament, and Micaiah, and Demas, and Samson, biblical figures, he wanted them to respond well once they realized the gap that God showed them. He wanted them to respond like Peter, and Mark, and Isaiah, and David did when they realized the gap in their own lives. See, part of receiving God's renewal is living with the joy of God's pleasure on your life simply because you're in Christ, combined with the knowledge that there is a gap between who you are today and what you will be glorified to become tomorrow. A gap between your existence now and what God is working hard to remake you to be in the future. We're satisfied with God's pleasure and smile on us because we're simply in Christ, but we also rejoice knowing that he wants to grow and transform and change us to be more and more like Jesus. In other words, we should not be comfortable with the gap, a kind of I am who I am spirit, but we should be comfortable in the gap. Yeah, there's a gap, but God is remaking me. God is doing some real work in me. He's shown me that gap, but he's changing and transforming my life. We have to become comfortable in that place, comfortable with a continual discovery of our limitations, weaknesses, frailties, failures, and sins, comfortable with the Spirit bringing specific conviction into our lives. You guys, none of us has arrived, amen? I mean, think about it. I heard one pastor say it like this, you know, when you were... When you were 10 years old, you thought seven-year-old version of you was just ridiculous. You know, like, I can't believe I thought that when I was seven. Then when you were 15, you thought 10-year-old version of you was ridiculous. Then when you were 21, you thought 15-year-old version of you was ridiculous. 
and 35-year-old version thought 21-year-old version of you was ridiculous. And I'm 43 years old now, and so I know that that means, as I look back, oh man, 35-year-old version of Nate was ridiculous. I just didn't have, I didn't have it figured out. What does that mean? That means when I'm 50, I'm gonna look back at 43-year-old Nate Holdridge and go, man, that guy did not have a clue. All right, so we're all trying to, in Christ, grow into what he wants us to become. We've got to be comfortable with that continual discovery. All this is what made Nehemiah pray the way that he did. He was not driven from God when he heard the condition of the city. Didn't say, oh, that's embarrassing. I could never talk to God about that. Instead, he ran directly to God. It says in verse four that he sat down and he wept and mourned for days. He fasted and he prayed before God. And a major part of his prayer was confession. Look at verse six. It says that he confessed the sins of the people of Israel. And then he took it a step further at the end of verse six. He said, Israel's sins were his sins. He says, we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. When Nehemiah saw that gap between God's ideal and their reality, he confessed their and his own sins to God. You see, that city did not need to be lying in ruins. God said it would be judged and that for 70 years it would have to lie in ruins, but those days were well over with. Nehemiah's around 150 years, living 150 years after that initial destruction of Jerusalem. So the people of Israel could have rebuilt this many times, but they'd not done it, and so he confesses his sin. He thinks he's even negligent himself. There's something about his own life that he was ashamed of. So when he saw the gap, he confessed his and the nation's sins to God. And I just want to, before I move off of this point, I want to highlight the importance of developing this kind of practice and community in your own life, where you see the need for and the possibility of ongoing confession. The need should be obvious, right? We're not yet fully reformed into the image of Jesus, so there's gonna be stuff that we do say, think, feel, and experience that is out of line with his best for us. Right, so none of us has got it all together, so we've got to, that's the need for confession, but the possibility of confession is provided for us by the gospel itself. It's a message that teaches us to acknowledge and bring our sins to God that he might deal with them, and part of this is through confession. James said in James 5, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's just a beautiful community to me. John said in John 1, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the psalmist said it like this in the Old Testament era, Psalm 38, 18, he said, I confess my iniquity, I am sorry for my sin. And I think when we speak to God like this, and when we speak to one another like this, we're shaping our identity in line with the gospel. When we don't have this in our lives, the temptation is to walk around in pharisaical self-approval. But when we can honestly share with the right people in our lives our weaknesses and imperfections 
This confessional community will keep us dependent on Jesus and free, listen to me now, free from the burnout that so many people experience in their church life. You see, we're not called to walk around acting as if we have it all together. The pressure to be perfect is impossible to bear. But because many people never discover a healthy gospel-oriented community like I'm describing right now, they burn out eventually in their Christian life. They had no one to talk to, no one to say, hey man, I don't have it all together, I'm really struggling in this area of my life. We gotta be like Nehemiah, we gotta see the gap and confess. But the second thing I want you to see here is not just, you know, that's the big thing, that God will show us the gap, but in showing us the gap, he refreshes us in his own nature and promises. You see, there's no way that we would turn to God when that gap is revealed if we had the wrong ideas about God, <laughs> you know. If you don't think that he'll receive you, do something for you, help you, you'd never run to God in a situation like this. But Nehemiah, fortunately, he knew God. He starts quoting to God all these passages from the Bible that God wrote. In Nehemiah's prayer, he, he says to God in verse five, he says, God, you're the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he's highlighting God's nature. He's highlighting God's love. And then in verse eight through nine, he says, you know, God, you told Moses, you know, this is a thousand years earlier, you told Moses that if Israel was unfaithful, you would scatter them among the nations, but that you would gather them back to your holy place if they returned to you and kept your commandments. That's what Nehemiah's expecting. He's like, that's what I wanna do. I wanna lead a revival, God, so that you can bring us back into your place and we can get that momentum once again. But at that moment, the things that Nehemiah had read about God in the book of Deuteronomy and elsewhere, they were coming to life. It's like, God, this is who you are. You're a covenantal God, a covenant of love. You're a promise keeper. You said you would cause us to come back if we repented and turned and walked with you. And this is what God does today. For those of you who know him, there's something about seeing our gaps that reminds us of who God is. You know, we know that God is powerful because we read all about it in the Bible. We know that God is love because we've read all about it in the Bible. We know that God is a promise keeper because we've read all about it in the Bible, but when we come face to face with our limitations, weaknesses, the gap between what should be and what is, when he shows us his vantage point, God also refreshes us in his nature and promises. He wants us in that moment to say, man, I feel weak, I need his power. I feel ashamed, I need to receive his love. And I feel like I'm out of step with what he wants from me. I need to walk in his promises to help me shore up these gaps. You see, it's, it's an odd thing about us. It seems that God becomes the most real to us when we're face to face with our own limitations. It's like we're in amazement of what he's like when we really come face to face with what we're like. You know, in fiction or in literature, when do various figures most want to be saved? When did Frodo most want Gandalf's presence? Every time, you know, on the, on the road to Mordor, it's 
when he's afraid, when it's nighttime, he's in a haunted forest, he feels afraid and scared, he's conscious of his own limitations. When did the Narnians crave Aslan, when everything was good? No, in the wintertime, when they were feeling the pressure. When did Luke Skywalker most miss Obi-Wan Kenobi? When, it, when in situations where their limitations were felt strongly. The psalmist said it like this. Maybe you've felt this way before. He said, when I thought my foot slips. You ever felt that way? Like, man, I was cruising, but my foot is slipping right now. I'm not on stable ground like I used to be. He says, when I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. What was happening there? Was God's steadfast love distant, remote, removed from the psalmist as he's cruising along through life, then he starts to slip and God's covenantal love comes in? No, his covenantal love was always there. He just didn't know, feel, experience it like he did once his foot began to slip. And he realized, man, there's God with his safety net underneath me. You might remember in the life of Peter, there was that moment where Jesus walked on the Sea of Galilee past the disciples. They were in the boat and they saw Jesus, and when Peter recognized that it was Jesus, he said, Lord, if it's you, call me to come out and walk to you. It's always been a little bit of a mysterious like, logic to me. Like, if it was a bad guy, and he's like, yeah, I'm Jesus, come on out. <laughs> you know, I don't know. But Jesus says, yes, it's me. He gets his permission. Peter gets out of the boat. He starts walking on the water to Jesus. It's amazing. But then he saw the wind and the waves, the text says, and he was afraid and started to sink. And he cried out to Jesus in that moment, Lord, save me. And I think Peter's story is often our story. We're cruising along. We're thinking pretty highly of ourselves. Then we see the reality around us and inside of us, and we start to sink. But it's in that moment when our foot slips that the Lord becomes big, to us again. Peter looked to Jesus at that moment. He saw the difference between himself and his Lord. I'm sinking, you're standing on the top of the water. And when we slip, we have a chance to see the nature, the true nature of our God. In Nehemiah's day, he became conscious that the foot of the nation had slipped. And maybe in your own life, or maybe as you look at the church, you realize Man, I've slipped as well. We're not the lighthouse broadcasting God's glory as we should be. But in the slippage, there's God. No matter how far down his people tumble, he's unshaken and unchanged. His love remains. But let's close with one last thing. The Lord gives us this burden by showing us the gap and showing us his nature, but he also reminds us of our identity in the light of who he is. That's an interesting thing about this process. And I don't just mean our identity in the sense of seeing the gap between what could be and what is. It's that gap that helped Nehemiah come to the conclusion, this ain't right. We are the people of Israel. We are called by God. We are God's chosen people. We have a destiny that is so much different than what we're actually living out right now. And Nehemiah becomes conscious of who they were because of their relationship with God. Look at verse six. He starts calling Israel God's servants. Then look at verse 
10, he says to God, they are your servants. They are your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Though the exodus was ancient history at this point, Nehemiah envisioned all of their history as these moments of God's over and over again deliverance for his people. He even told God that the scattered Israelites, he says in verse nine, they're your outcasts. They all belong to you. They're yours. We're yours, Nehemiah was conscious of. It's like he was jolted in this moment. Man, we're God's people. We're meant for more than this. We have a greater purpose and destiny than this. And I think Nehemiah was saying, I want back in on God's plans. I want back in on God's best. I want him to renew us. All this got at the heart of what God had exiled them for in the first place. You see, before they'd gone to Babylon for centuries, they were doing what they wanted to do and they were disconnected from their identity that they had in God. But in exile, they were meant to ask the question because Babylonian culture was not the kind of culture they could be living in safely. They were to ask the question, who are we and how should we live? And last year as a church, we studied 1 Peter together, thinking about Peter's proposal of what exile Christianity looks like. What does Christianity look like in environments that are not conducive to that Christianity? And it's in exile that many times we come to a realization afresh of what it's really all about, of what we really are in Christ, what the essential things of our faith should be. In the book of Acts, at the end of the book, there's a story about Paul the Apostle. He gets on a boat, he's a prisoner, and he's being taken away with hundreds of other uh, passengers on board this ship to Rome. And they're out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea and this terrible storm comes upon them. It's in the winter time, it's dark, they can't see the stars for a number of days. And everybody begins to think, we're gonna die. But God gives to Paul a vision and speaks to him. Nobody on this ship is going to die. And so Paul tells everybody, he's like, hey, if you guys listen to me, we're not gonna lose any life. I've been comforted by God about this. And so they're just trying to get through. They wanna run aground on an island, but they're trying to make their way. And in the process, they start throwing everything overboard. And everything overboard, all the people stay in, but everything else goes overboard. Pretty soon the ship starts breaking apart. What you have at the end of the story is just all the people floating on boards to the island. All the essentials were gone. Everything else was thrown overboard. All the extraneous stuff, I mean, was gone, but the essentials, the people remained. And when we begin to see things as God sees them, when we receive God's burden, when we discover the gap between what should be and what is, we have an opportunity to get in touch again with the essentials of our faith. We have an opportunity to see again who we are. And Nehemiah said, man, we're God's servants. We're his people, he has a plan for us, and a broken city and feeble worship is not that plan. It was a beautiful thing that Nehemiah realized. And that sense of identity that he had, it was firmly rooted in what Nehemiah understood about God. When God's children know God, they begin begin to know and understand themselves. 
Eugene Peterson said it this way. He said, my identity does not begin when I begin to understand myself. No, there's something previous to what I think about myself, and it's what God thinks of me. That means that everything I think and everything I feel is by nature a response to God. God is the definer of who we are if we're in Christ Jesus. And this is cool because we live in a world that is pursuing self-achieved identity. But our identity as God's children is not achieved, it's given to us through Christ. This is crucial because the self-achieved identity must also be self-sustained. If you've earned your identity, you have to maintain your identity. But in Christ, I, our identity is secure. Nehemiah wasn't shaken at all. He's like, we haven't performed well. We haven't done the right stuff, but we're still yours. We still belong to you, and it's time for a revival to take place. This refreshed identity is what made Nehemiah's last action and words in the episode a fitting one. Let's close with this. He said in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then a little note, now I was cupbearer to the king. It's in this last little moment that we're let in on what Nehemiah was doing there with King Artaxerxes. He was his cupbearer. This means at the very least that he was like the poison tester. You know, the food would come in, the wine would come in, and Nehemiah would have a little bite, and then they kind of watch him, like, you know, all right, Nehemiah made it, so now King Artaxerxes can't eat it. But by that time, this position had likely developed into something even more prestigious than just that, a lofty position of power and influence in the courts of the king. And certainly, that position had attached to it wealth and ease. And Nehemiah, will learn next week, prayed this prayer for months. And he became so in touch with his identity as one of God's children that he eventually prayed this prayer of volunteerism. That's what he's doing here. He's volunteering himself. He's so in touch with who he is in God that he knows, man, I gotta lay my life down. What I mean is that Nehemiah's willingness to get uncomfortable, to sacrifice it all, to leave his position of prestige so he could help God's people flourish, that is a biblical attitude. Like Abraham, who left his position of comfort to launch out into the unknown with God, or Moses, who considered his position in Pharaoh's courts as nothing in comparison to having God, or Esther, who realized that it would be better to perish for God than to retain the throne without God, Nehemiah became like them, willing to lay down his life. But this attitude and all of their attitudes, it's not just a biblical attitude, it's the gospel attitude. All those figures from the Old Testament era prefigured Jesus, the one who truly left it all for the sake of God's people. And as Nehemiah got in touch with his identity as God's child, listen to me now, as he got in touch with his identity as God's child, he began behaving like God's son. He thought about the position that God had given him, cupbearer to the king, and he realized he was supposed to use that position for God's glory. The same should occur in us. As the Spirit reveals the gap in us between what could be and what is, we should consider first the love and the promises of God, the nature of what he's like. And as we turn to God in humble confession, 
and adopt a daily posture of dependence on him, he'll remind us over and over again of who we are in Christ. And soon with the identity that God gives fresh in our minds, we will realize that the one that the Bible calls the firstborn of the brethren, in other words, Jesus is our older brother, we'll realize that Jesus laid down his life for us. And we will want to lay down our lives as well. We'll want to do what we can in God's strength and in God's power to see renewal, starting with being about shoring up the gap that exists. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.